I ran into a strange proposition while I was over at Huntsville that once more impressed me of how man is able to make gods in his own image. And I've thought of how many people I have met over the many, many years of being in, first, of course, the Radio Church of God, and name was changed to Worldwide Church of God in the middle 1960s, and then the CGI, and now the ICG, but familiar with the Church of God Seventh Day, and how many people have come to me with all kinds of what I have characterized as idea babies. Now, when you give birth to a child as a couple, as a wedded family, or as a mother, you really love that child. There is no love stronger than a mother's love for a little baby, and certainly a father shares in that love as well. And when you nurture and you cuddle and you change and you feed and you protect and you shower love and affection upon a little child, you make that child your own. You are its creator, and it is flesh of your flesh and blood of your blood and bone of your bone. It is part of you, and you absolutely love it. The same can be true of imaginary ideas. Now, we all know that the world is lost in paganism, and if you ex exempt the United States, because most people would like to think that all Protestants are going to the same place, just going to get there by different modes and directions and so on, then you have to think about India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and all of China with more than 400 different religions, all of Africa with animism and witchcraft and all the other religions in between, all of the pagans down in Haiti where the uh, black arts, as they're called, or black magic is still practiced in some of the witchcraft religions. Now I find just the other day there's a sensational revelation that witchery, witchcraft, demonism, Satanism has found its way into the United States Army and that they are actually justifying that. There are all kinds of gods, all kinds of creatures and things that are worshipped Imaginary gods by the millions. As I've said, man can make gods by the millions, but he can't make the segment of an earthworm in a laboratory. Man makes God according to his own whims, his own fancies, his own likes and his dislikes. To Hindus, they have many arms, jeweled navels are sitting around. They're black or brown or white or red. Many blacks in our country, and I'm not speaking of those in God's church, will tell you that when it says in the first chapter of the book of Revelation that his hair was white like wool, that it is not emphasizing the color but the texture, and that therefore God is a black man. And many of them do believe that in this country, by the way. You will get into a very heated argument if you try to cross swords with them on that issue. You know, of course, if you've been to Japan, as I have, or China, and some of the Oriental countries that Buddha is a huge, big, fat man with jug-handle ears that sits there with an inscrutable expression on his face with a jewel in his navel. But I'll tell you that by far the most common personal idol or the most common god is the one in the vain, illogical, conceited, supercilious hauteur of would-be theological scholars, of self-appointed masters of all mysteries, a carnal, arrogant, perhaps demon-influenced believer in his own creation, his own idea baby. I've heard some of them that are the most blasphemous that you can imagine. I've heard people come up to me and propose all kinds of way far out ideas. A skeptic once said, there is no God, and I can prove it, because if there were a God, there would be no war. No disease, no poverty, no accidents. Surely, if since God is love, God would not allow all the horrors to occur on this earth. The other day, by the way, there was a cartoon that showed two youngsters standing outside of the Littleton, Colorado school. And one of them turned to the other and said, surely God could have stopped this. And the other little kid said, why, God is not allowed in school anymore. And that was a pretty good, poignant way to put it, wasn't it? But the point is, God is not in the business of preventive legislation. God does not stop what man decides to do. The Ten Commandments are not preventive legislation. They do not prevent anything. But if you'll turn, I won't turn there, but Exodus 20, verses 2 through 6. After he introduces himself, I am the Lord thy God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, he gives the first commandment. Why is it first? Why is it not 10th or 7th 
or sixth or fourth. It is the first one, the very first thing we are to focus on, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, in Protestant and Catholic America, and even Protestant Catholic Jewish America, most people really think that is an archaic commandment. It doesn't really apply here in this United States because we are a, quote, Christian, or Judeo-Christian at least, society. They think that the Jews, even though they're wrong to a rejected Christ, nevertheless worship the Yahweh or the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And most Christians are comfortable with that because they will not agree to the first chapter of the book of John or the first chapter of Hebrews. They will not accept what it plainly says there, that the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own fingers, the one we know of as Jesus Christ, because it is utterly fatal to many, many, many of their doctrinal ideas, especially the one that the Sabbath has been done away, the Ten Commandments have been done away, nailed to the cross, the holy days are done away, etc., etc. The very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We always think of that as pagan Buddha, Vishnu, Dagon, Baal. We always think of the Orient. We always think of idols and statuary, but we don't think of modern-day United States of America. The second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. They've made fish-headed gods. They've made gods that look like every conceivable insect or animal. You know that the pagan Egyptians worshipped anything from scarabs, kinds of beetles that they actually preserved and put them in little sarcophagi and mummified them. They worshipped anything that was in the Nile River and the Nile itself, which is why God poured out plagues upon all the beasts and the creatures that they worshipped as well as the Nile River. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them, for I, the eternal thy God, am a jealous God. If you look up that word, we tend to think of jealousy as being a very evil emotion. In this context, and in many other contexts, it is not. To be jealous of one's rights, to be jealous of one's love to a spouse or a loved one, and not to want some other love to interfere between that love, is the kind of jealousy that God is capable of and actually possesses. Because He will not tolerate someone who worships other gods, be that of his own creation, of his own imagination, of his own mind, or of someone else's creation. You shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them, for I, the eternal thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them, or as it says, the thousandth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. But millions of people have the ultimate personal God. And what that is, is simple ego. It is simple self. It is vanity. It is the desire in one's own conceits to have one's own way, to think that one's own concepts, thoughts, perceptions, ideas, are equal with or above that of all other human beings and that anyone who decides that he or she is actually a direct emissary in direct contact with God, and who knows how many hundreds of thousands of people like that have been and that still are on this earth today, and the enormous damage they have caused. And that includes anybody from a guru like the Bhagwan to someone like Adolf Hitler, who was a pseudo-Christ who led the entire world into war and was responsible for the death of more than 40 million people, directly or indirectly. Graven in the imagery of their own minds, likened to their own conceits, served with the tenderest love of indulgence, laved, cuddled, petted, clasped to their bosom. The idea baby to which many people have given birth is their God. Now I've said time and again that idol bashing is not a very healthy pastime. And when you disagree with someone who has come up to you and presented you with his gurgling little idea baby, all swaddled in the newborn clothes, you are really in for a terrible bit of trouble and scorn, if not absolute hatred, and even maybe physical attack. Jesus Christ suffered that. I've gone over with you before how he said, as a matter of fact, I think I did a week or so ago, 
that he told the people in the synagogue in Nazareth who were imbued with the idea we are God's people, this is God's country, this is God's synagogue, we are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whatever God is doing, he's doing here. He's not doing over there in the next country. He's not doing among the Philistines. He's not doing out there among the Amalekites. He's doing it here in Israel. And so Christ reads a passage out of Isaiah. And he then tells them after he shuts the book or the scroll, I tell you in the days of Israel when there was a terrible dearth or a drought, there were many, many widows. And they were suffering and the inference is that many of them died of starvation. They were not given help or relief. But unto none of them was sent. Elijah was sent to one woman up in a Syrophoenician seacoast, a little town called Sarepta. Some people mistakenly think that was her name. No, it was the town. It said, unto none of them was Elijah sent, but unto one woman, a widow, who was not even an Israelite. And then the terrible time of horrible leprosy, when people's fingers and noses and extremities were dropping off and rotting away. And many people, no doubt, died in agony of that horrible, repugnant disease in the days of Elisha. And unto none of them in all of Israel was he sent. But unto Naaman, a Syrian, you know how he told him to go wash in the river seven times. He came away absolutely healed. So God, who had one prophet at a time on the entirety of the earth, I've asked the question again rhetorically, what church did Elijah build? And I think you get the point. What church did Elisha build? Well, they were sent to the leadership, Elijah to Ahab and Jezebel. They were sent to the leadership to witness and to warn about the fact that the country and all in it had turned their backs upon God and they were not God's people anymore. It wasn't God's country anymore. God was not working among them. What he was doing, he was not doing in and among and around them. They were not God's country. They can print in God we trust on our bills all they wish, but it isn't really true. We trust in the bill upon which the words are printed, but we don't trust in God. Not in this nation. And it was true then. It is a little bit of mental gymnastics for you to wrap your mind around how it could be that someone could say something seemingly so harmless to simply preach a sermon out of the book of Isaiah to his hometown group of Jews in the city of Nazareth and really tell them, you're wrong, this isn't God's country, you aren't God's people, you've turned your back on God, God isn't working among you, and He hasn't worked among you from way back in history, because your nation, your leaders, and you have rejected God. That they would rise up out of a church service and attempt to murder Him on the spot. Try to drag Him out to a cliff and throw Him over, in their haste, they weren't even going to go to the tribunal and even say that he deserves to be stoned. They were simply going to take the law in their own hands and murder him on the spot. That's in the fourth chapter of the book of Luke. Read it. It's very interesting. Proverbs 14, verse 12, and also God thought it was so important, he repeated this in Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Exact same expression in Proverbs 16:25. It seems so right. It seems so wholesome, so healthy. It is the right way to go. Today we look at anything from social welfare and we look at the health plan that Hillary came up with and thankfully didn't succeed in getting through or the statement that it takes a village or all of the things they're going to do with the surplus money or trying to save Medicaid, Medicare and Social Security. We look at the socialized United States of America from the days of FDR and the Warren Court. And by the way, I've got to get that prayer that was prayed by a man who then was walked out on by a lot of uh, officials in government and that Paul Harvey repeated the other day. I got it off of the email. I'm going to reprint it in the newspaper, but it's really interesting because it shows just how far down the tube America has really gone. It seems so right. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Judges 21 and 25. That's the very last verse of the book of Judges, which is one of the bloodiest books in all of the Bible. One war after another. One horrible event after another. And a series of judges, one after another, that had to fight Israel's enemies. And there are countless hundreds of thousands who were slain as you read through the history in the book of the, per of the period of Judges from Joshua until the time of Samuel and then, of course, the anointing of Saul. And the very last summary of that bloodiest book, There is a way which seemeth right 
unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Almost the same words in Judges 21, 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In his own eyes. So what does that say? Every man was a law unto himself. They carried personal sovereignty to the point of anarchy. They did what they felt, what they thought was right. Over in 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, and you know there were many such admonitions by the Apostle Paul to the young evangelist Timothy about words and doctrines and false teachers because Christ had warned that very first sign leading up to the time of the tribulation there shall be false Christs and false prophets. And if it weren't for the fact of God's intervention, even the very elect would be deceived. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud. And that's always true. I've never yet met a man or a woman who came up, up to me with their cuddly little idea baby, sometimes so blasphemous that it nearly makes you want to jump back for fear lightning is going to strike. But what they were, proud. And oftentimes... However that happens, when the first little glimmer of the thought strikes the mind and they grab the little document they're looking at or the little uh, pamphlet they receive from some other religion or the piece of email or the book or the booklet or something they discovered or maybe just an idea that came to them and then they try to seek to find all kinds of scriptures or arguments to justify it and to prove that it is so. And by the time it is fully born, by the time they have cause the gradual process which leads toward the birth, toward the birth of a full-fledged idea, they have made it their own. And for you to reject it and to say right then and there when you hear it, that is blasphemy, makes them furious. It says here he is proud, knowing nothing. Who? Who is he talking about? Some pagan Gentile who walks up to him trying to sell him an idol? Paul is writing to Timothy about people in the church. This is a pastoral administration letter. He's telling Timothy the kind of things that he can expect to discover in the ranks of the people who come to hear him. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words. Now, if you look at the margin, it says a fondness for. The word doting means a fondness for. Really fond of strifes, questions, whereof cometh envy, because one person, if he can get across a doctrinal idea that causes an entire church to adopt a new posture, to make some violent change, to reject one doctrine and accept another, little rumors beginning to come along here and there about change of doctrine in different organizations, then he will be envied by others because he will be recognized, he or she, as the one who discovered this new truth and therefore was, in a sense, anointed as a messenger of God, someone that God Almighty has used and has recognized and used as an instrument to cause this church that was going the wrong way, off the track, get back on track, get back on the right track and go the right way. Whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, that's really loud accus accusative, raising your voice, really shouting at one another. Evil surmisings, that's the quiet introspective meditation. I know why she's saying that. I know why he's acting that way. I surmise this. I judge. I make up my mind. And then, of course, all of the glandular opinions come up. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, whether it is gain in membership or gain in the thing that, of course, appeals to all humanity, money and power. From such, withdraw yourself. Not long ago, in another place, in another state, a young man began to argue with me that the word Elohim implies female as well as male. And so to him, in his theology, his concept of God, there is God the Father and God the Mother. And I showed him how throughout the entirety of history, no one has come up with that kind of an idea except in the feminist movement. Of course, some of the people have actually written a new revised Bible and addressed the divinity as she. But why would Mary be chosen, do you suppose? 
for that matter, why the human race? God is reproducing after his own kind. He didn't understand the statement. Elohim said, let us make man in our image. Now set that aside. He only understood when it said, male and female made he them. And since it's in God's image, therefore the female must also be in God's image. Therefore, since he thinks Elohim is feminine instead of masculine, there must be a she up there somewhere. Well, if there were, there could be, how many gods could there be by now with male and female God just having little God and little God growing up and having other little gods and there'd be little gods everywhere running around. It was an utterly blasphemous idea and I told him so. That, to me, is blasphemy. Not happy. Not a happy camper. Did not like my opinion of his idea baby at all. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science. Now, how do you make yourself popular if you're going to do that? Well, my premise is wrong, isn't it? The point is, you don't make yourself popular. That wasn't what Paul was trying to make Timothy. He wasn't trying to make him popular. He was trying to protect Timothy and the church. Only one rotten apple rots the entire box. He was trying to prevent that from happening. And he says, oppositions of science, and by the way, that word really comes from the Greek, which means knowledge, falsely so-called, not science as a discipline, as we might think it means a technical a study of some kind involving anything from medicine to aerospace, but merely the word knowledge. Knowledge falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee, amen. And he discontinued the letter at that point. I want to show you how one man created a personal idol out of himself. And then he was idolized by many others. If you'll turn over to the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. This had to get going over a period of time. This had to be talked over by the campfires for weeks and perhaps even months. And there is much here that we can learn in this chapter, the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi. So he was the great, great grandson of Levi himself. And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. Now, they didn't go out and grab them by the ear. It says, they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And this had to have taken place, as I said, over a period of many, many weeks, if not months. So there had to be lots of caucuses. There had to be jealousy, resentment. They talked it up. There were many, many discussions. They were caucus together, three, four, five of them, and somebody would walk by the campfire, and hush, hush, he might hear you. Wait a minute, wait, wait, hang on. Oh, okay, it's safe. What was that you were saying? You can just see it. They were cloistered together. Some of them were joined at the hip. I mean, it was two and two, and three and three, and four and four, and they were just together, talking all the time. And finally, there was a cadre of 250 of them. So the announcement was made. Tomorrow, 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 all through the camp, 250 of them. Be ready, exactly 10 o'clock, whatever. Tomorrow we march. And so here they came, pretty good sized group. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And one of their spokesmen, must have been Korah himself, I would deduce from this, said unto them, you take too much upon you. Now, wait just a minute. You and I know how Moses was called, don't we? How was he called? Remember, the burning bush. Remember his reluctance? Remember how he argued he couldn't talk? Remember how God said, I'm going to make Aaron your spokesperson? Remember how Moses felt absolutely unworthy? And we will see again in this encounter with people who were rebels, Moses was a very meek man. God says that of him, that he was a very meek and a humble man. You take too much upon you. Well, that was a lie all by itself. He had not appointed himself. Seeing all the congregation are holy. Now, what is this? This is equality. We are all as good as you are. We are all equal here. This is a democratic movement. 
This is a movement of the princes who want then to influence all of the others. So it is an uprising from the people against the God-appointed leadership. And the eternal is among them. These are good folks. These are God's people. They are sincere. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the eternal. And of course they used religious language. We're God's people. We're therefore good people. We're God's congregation. When Moses heard it, he fell upon his face because he knew he was in the presence of arrogance. He was in the presence of Satan, of evil, and possibly the presence of divine wrath. And he didn't want to get hit by it, so he fell upon his face to show God that he was horrified by this terrible thing that was happening. He spake unto Korah, and unto all his company, which proves to me it was Korah who did the talking, saying, Even tomorrow the Eternal will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him, even him who is chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do. Take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Eternal tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Eternal doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, does it seem a small thing to you that the God of Israel separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself and to do the service of the tabernacle of the eternal and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? The tabernacle, of course, was like a temporary temple. And only the Levites could carry censers. And a censer was simply a big, broad plate that was held up on a pole and they would put hot coals in it and sprinkle an incense on it and hold it. It was symbolic of the prayers of God's people wafting up to heaven. You all know what incense is. You can go to the stores and buy it, and some people burn it to this day. So he told them, and some of them, by the way, were Reubenites, and others who were not actually Levites and were not really authorized to burn incense or to hold a censer. And so he said, He has brought thee near to him, and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and you seek the priesthood also, for which cause both you and all your company are gathered together against the eternal. Remember, he did not say against me. Didn't make it personal. God will show who is his. You are gathered together against God. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? And Moses didn't even talk about, I am outraged that you are murmuring against me. Moses didn't let himself take it personally and react personally. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eli, remember them and their name, we will not come up. Isn't that interesting? Human nature at work. Once the idea baby was born, once this root of bitterness had just reached all the way down to the heart and completely through the brain, all of a sudden it wasn't just a humble desire to right a wrong. It wasn't just a democratic movement. Maybe we ought to have more equality here. Surely Moses will be amenable to this. Surely he will hear us out. He's a good and a decent man. He's a fair man. Messenger comes and says, Moses would like to see you. Well, we're not going. We're not going to go over there and meet with him. We know it would be a set up deal. He'd just give us another snow job. No, no. We're not going to go meet. We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you brought us up out of a land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? They characterized Egypt with its idolatry as a land flowing with milk and honey and put the appellative on it that God had placed upon the promised land. They tried to make pagan Egypt, which is like Babylon par excellence, into the promised land. So they turned it backwards to kill us in the wilderness, except that you make yourself altogether a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? What are you going to do? You're evil. Are you going to just absolutely poke out their eyes? Their eyes can see what you're doing. They've got eyes. They've got ears. They're smart. They're intelligent. They know how evil you are, Moses. What are you going to do? Blind them? Just how evil are you, Moses? Real human nature in action here, isn't it? And Moses was very wroth and said to the eternal, Respect not thou their offering. So he took his case directly to God. He prayed to God. Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And he hadn't. He had not exploited his position. He had not enriched himself. He hadn't taken one thing from any of them. 
And Moses said unto Korah, Be you and all your company before the Eternal, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and take every man his censer, and put incense in them, and bring you before the Eternal every man his censer, 250 of them, you also and Aaron, each of you his censer. So they did, they put the coals in them, the fire, and they laid the incense on. They stood there at the door of the tabernacle. And Korah gathered all the congregation at the door of the tabernacle, and the glory of the Eternal appeared. So here came that big cloud, and it just settled there. And it was probably a glowing fire-like flame from within it. And a big booming voice was heard, like that thunder you can hear in the distance. And the Eternal spoke unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. Interesting little phrase there too, isn't it? We've never really zeroed in on that phrase when you're talking about the fact that God has placed in every single one of us a human spirit. And that it is His spirit with our spirit that creates the new creature in Christ. God is the God of the spirits of all flesh. Shall one man sin and will you be wroth with the congregation? And the Eternal spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle, that's the big tent, of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and all the elders of Israel followed him. A large contingent of them went over to an area where these men were in camp. And he spake to the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they listened to him. They got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And so Dathan and Abiram come out finally, and they stand there on the door of the tents with their wives, their sons, their little children, each one of them almost like a clansman over a large family, three generations or more represented. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Eternal has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own hand. If these men die the common death of all men, accident, an animal, old age, or if they be visited at the visitation of all men, then the Eternal has not sent me. But if the Eternal, and that's the J-H-V-H, that is God in covenant relationship with Israel, the one who became Christ. If the Eternal make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, Sheol is the word, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Eternal. And it came to pass... As he had made an end of speaking all these words, the ground clave asunder that was under them, just like a giant earthquake and huge crevasses opened up right in the dust of the plain. And the earth opened her mouth, and with shrieks and wails, they all just cascaded down into the very bowels of the earth, hundreds of feet, maybe a thousand feet, whatever. It just closed up, dust in the air everywhere, people falling down, lying on the ground because of this gigantic shaking of the earth. And they're just gone. Their tents were gone. Their cattle were gone. Every last one of them. Under the what generation of them? What? How many? What? Who is it who pays sometimes for the sins? Ponder this because, brethren, this was done by the one you know of as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. To what degree does Jesus Christ of Nazareth place responsibility on a parent. To what degree do children sometimes suffer as a result of what a parent will do? Those little kids didn't know from anything about all the politics going on around the campfire, but they went down into the pit. You have to deal with that. The whole family. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the one who became Christ, the Yahweh, the Old Testament, knew exactly what kind of kids they would grow up to be with that kind of training, with that kind of parents, with that kind of perversity around them all the time. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, verse 32, and their houses, and all the men that appertained to Korah, and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. Now you're left with just one or two things here. Either you don't believe this, and either this is just a lot of old Hebrew campfire chit-chat, either it is a lot of fables and old Hebrew tales that they told, or it is part of something that has been done away and it is not really the Bible. You'll have to deal with that. Or it is true, it really happened, and the one we know of as Jesus Christ was the member of the divine Elohim who caused it to happen. And that is, of course, the truth. 
And all Israel were round about them, fled at the cry of them, and they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came a fire from the eternal. He wasn't through with them yet. Not by any means. And consumed the 250 men that offered incense. It burnt them to a crisp, but it didn't even melt the censers. It just destroyed them to where they're lying there, a bunch of burnt bones. But look what happened to the censers. He said, Speak to Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning, and scatter the fire yonder, for they are hallowed, any fire remaining in them. And so they did. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, their own lives, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offer them before the eternal, therefore they are hallowed and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And so they were pounded out flat, and they were made into flat. They were about this big around, I imagine, about a yard round, and they were sort of dish-like shaped. But then they just flattened them out and made them plates for over the altar. And that's where they stayed. To be a memorial unto the children of Israel that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, not Reubenites, not people that just decide to rise up and mount some kind of a rebellion, but only those whom God has chosen come near to offer incense before the eternal, that he be not as Korah and as his company, as the eternal said to him by the hand of Moses. But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the eternal. Moses did it. Moses and Aaron caused the earth to open up. I'll tell you, there's nothing that God has given us these examples of stiff-necked Israelites so that we can just marvel at this kind of rebellion, at the incredible, fallible reasoning, if it is even that, uh, of coming up with that kind of a statement when you're dealing with a divine miracle of something which is incontrovertible. You saw with your own eyes. You can go over there. There's a place where it looks like there used to be a crack in the soil. There's nothing there to even show that there was anybody there. And here maybe hundreds of people were swallowed up and went down into the heart of the earth. And then they accuse Moses and Aaron of having actually done it. So it came to pass, the congregation was gathered against them. They looked toward the tabernacle, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the eternal appeared. That's sort of like a summons. And God is there, and this brightness is there in the cloud. And it's like saying to Moses and Aaron, come here. So they went before the tabernacle, and the eternal spoke unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. God proposed on more than one occasion to obliterate all of them and to start all over with Moses and his family. That I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar. Moses thought that if we do this, God will somehow stay his hand. But you better be quick about it. So he said, Go, go quickly and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the eternal, and the plague is begun. Now God had to have indicated that to Moses. So Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation, running around with smoke coming as he ran, as the coals were fanned with the, the air movement as he was running. Into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people, and stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700, and beside them it died about the matter of Korah, and that was an unknown number of his family and all of those that were with him, sympathizers, and the 250. So you've got well more than 15,000 people who died as a result of this incredible rebellion, all as a result of an idea that infected the mind of one man. And that one man and his jealousy and his resentment began to grow. And he fed on it. And he infected some others with it. And the others who became infected infected others with it. Until they had 250 of them. And they were infecting thousands. Don't think that this plague was indiscriminate. God doesn't do things like that. If you think NATO bombing is surgically precise and it is not, I'll tell you this was surgically precise. This was not a group of people over there who were absolutely innocent. This plague was striking people who were part of the conspiracy. You can just bank on it. God was not killing what you would call innocent people indiscriminately. 
This was not just accidental, indiscriminate death. This was a plague from God upon rebellious people who deserved exactly what they got. In one way, human life to God is very, very precious. In another way, it's one of the cheapest commodities you can imagine. Because God says, through Christ, we are but grass. All flesh before me is as but grass, he says. That we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. I was walking along and saw a plaque over an old house that was built in 1874. And I began to realize that was built long before my father was born. And then I thought in a different way as I was meditating about the past, and that time long ago seems very short to me now, in 1929 when I was created, that I know an awful lot about what happened in this world before I was created. Because I was created. We like to say, well, I was born. No, I was created. So were you. I was created out of a spermatozoon and an egg. And it grew. And I was being formed and shaped and created. And before I knew very much, and I didn't know much, at, I can't remember a thing at age four. Age two and three is utterly just a blank. Even at sodium pentothal, the point of a bayonet, I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in my life at age two or three. I can't do it. I can remember vague little things at age five, and very little of that. I do not remember anything at all about my first day in school. I just know it must have been a first day. I remember nothing about what I wore, what my, ex my experiences were at age six. I remember nothing about it. I remember the name of my first grade teacher, but that was because I was there for a whole year, Mrs. Shuey. S-H-U-E-Y. I learned to spell it before I left the first grade, thankfully. I was created. And prior to the time that I was created and walking on this earth, I wasn't here. And the world is going to go on, if Christ doesn't come first, long after I am gone. And I've returned to the soil and the ground from whence I came. Now there's a purpose in your life and in my life. God is not interested in saving flesh. God is interested in recreating, in creating spirit. God is interested in reproducing after his own kind. You are a temporary vessel. He is the potter. You are walking around on this earth, breathing its air, drinking its water, eating all of its foods. And if you could actually take a boxcar, a train load of boxcars, and see how long it is, and hear the cattle lowing, and the chickens clucking, and all the other creatures see big tanks swimming with fish, and realize what has gone in here, and I won't say the rest of that, in the course of your lifetime, to keep you alive and breathing, you will realize how many creatures of this earth had to perish so that you might live. And how many tons and tons and tons of food you have consumed over the course of 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Enough to make 17 cattle ranchers rich. What's it all for? Well, because Almighty God is recreating after His own kind, and the most important thing He is after is a contrite heart and a broken spirit and complete and total humility and complete and total surrender to Him and a complete rejection, an absolute throwing away, a complete elimination of all personal idols. That means letting go of your own thoughts which you think are very, very godly, which you think God looks at the same way you do, and that this is your special idea. When I told a young man it was blasphemy, when he came to me with that idea, well, we just agree to disagree. No, we didn't at all. I didn't agree to disagree. But he wanted to phrase it that way, so he could go away a little bit intact. And he said, nevertheless, that's my concept. I said, well, to me, it's blasphemous. And it is. Absolute blasphemy. That there is a woman God up there with the real God. I want you to turn to Colossians 2.16. You remember I preached a sermon some years ago. Some of you probably heard it. Some did not. That was entitled, Unhallowed Curiosity. Unholy Curiosity. Sometimes you need to remember the old expression, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Now, most of the time when we read this scripture, we're talking, we're talking doctrine. 
and we're trying to explain to people this doesn't really mean doing away with the holy days. It is really substantiating the holy days and showing how we ought to observe them. Well, instead, let's read it from exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across. Verse 16, Colossians 2. Let no man therefore judge you because of your eating and drinking, as the margin says, in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, or of the months, the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. And sure enough, every single time you get a new idea, baby, and every year just before the Passover, the woodwork must swell and burst at the scene because out of the woodwork come all the Passover fanatics to try to tell us you're doing it wrong, you've got to do it on a different day, you've got to do it in a different way. If you do it our way, everything will be right. Well, as I've said before, I can't take my two deaf sons to these people who have got it right and say, would you heal them? I have not seen any special manifestation of great miraculous wonders and works and, and healings in those who pronounce the name of God in their defective, anglicized attempt at Hebrew. Have you? I haven't heard of it. I, I can name names of other leaders, and I won't do that. And I am just as cheerful to admit our lack, our lack of faith, if that is what it is, and it probably is, our inadequacy, our inferiority, the fact that we do not have the power, and I do not have the power, and I know I don't, because if I did, I would be confident of it, and I would know it, that Peter had at the gate called Beautiful. Because Peter just looked down and said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I'd be, just, I'd be tickled to death. But would it be vanity? Would it be declara uh, decoration of the person? Would it be something bad for me, bad for the church? Would it get notoriety? Would it bring persecution? I think the answer is yes to all of those. To go around emptying hospital corridors or uh, beds and so on and picking people up by the hand and picking them up out of wheelchairs. That is not what God has sent us here to do, but it would be wonderful if we could do that. Let no man judge you in meat or drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. And always there are ideas about holy days, about new moons, and about the Sabbath. How to observe it. And oftentimes they are extremely judgmental, sometimes even hostile. You're not doing it the way I think you ought to do it. Therefore, you are wrong and I am right and I'll have nothing further to do with you. Isn't that the way it goes? Follow me because I have the key. I have the clue. I have exactly the way you ought to do it. Notice this. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body, and notice the word is, is italicized. And it should only read the body of Christ. Let the body of Christ do the judging. Let the body of Christ do the determination. Now, notice verse 18, especially. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Look at the Roman Catholic Church and all of their saints and people that are always trying to get in touch with spirit beings in a spirit world. Intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. That's the only place in the entire Bible where the word intruding appears. It's only once in the entire Bible, right there in that scripture. And that certainly is what I was talking about when I talked about the unhallowed or unholy curiosity. When people begin to toy with the nature of God, the Godhead, who and what is God, what is God like, and they go anywhere other than from what is in this written word. They are intruding into areas where they have no business. They are partaking of an unholy, unhallowed curiosity. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility, and that is for show, that is outward humility, the way many people practice it. Look at those poor women that I've talked about before on their knees for five miles leading a bloody trail leading up to the Basilica de Virgen de Guadalupe down in Mexico City because that's the patron saint of all the Latin-speaking people. A voluntary humility, all of the signs, all of the holy water, all the stooping, all the bowing and scraping, all the little... Uh, sensors and smoke in the air, the lighting of guttering candles in the nave, all of the dark interiors of churches with their impudent steeples jutting into the sky. Voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up. I've never known it to fail. 
Whenever someone gets an idea, baby, his own personal idol, he just croons over it, nurtures it, cuddles it, pampers it, feeds it, lets it grow. And he is so proud of it. Look what I have wrought. Here's what I think. Garner Ted, you're wrong. Here's what you ought to. Well, if and when I am wrong, I certainly always want to change. And I certainly want to accept it. But I can guarantee there are people who will come up to you and want you by handing you a little pamphlet, a little thing they've written. And I get stuff, I mean, sometimes an inch or two thick. I get whole books. My wife can tell you, I don't think, and maybe this time I did get away and there wasn't much given to me, but most of the time, if I go to a personal appearance campaign, I can hardly close, and sometimes I've got to ask her to carry this stuff. Isn't that right, Mom? Cheryl. Uh, call her Mom because we're old folks now with grown kids. Uh, but she will actually have to help me carry this stuff home that people will try to force on. I really want you to read this, Garner Ted. They can't wait to get to me to give me a whole stack of things, sometimes books and so on, to read. And uh, sometimes, you know, on a rare occasion, it is, it is interesting. Uh, sometimes it is not, and sometimes it is downright where I want to wash my hands after I touch it, if you know what I mean. And that's rare, but I mean, there are times like that when I feel that way about it. I want to go to a couple of scriptures that, uh, one in particular, a lot of people can't understand. But first, as you turn to Proverbs 26, I will quote to you, Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, and then if you'll turn to Proverbs 26, verse 4. Through desire, a man, having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth in all wisdom. Isn't that fascinating? Through desire, that is, coveting to be different and separate, a man, having separated himself, seeks and intermeddles in all wisdom. That which is already written, that which is already known. He meddles in it. He torments it. He toys with it. He gets ideas about it. He seeks through his vanity to be separate, a standout, different, a teacher, religious philosopher. Follow me. I know the way. Proverbs 18.1. Through desire, a man having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth in all wisdom. A fool, verse 2, has no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. In other words, if a fool understands he's a fool, his heart discovers what he really is, and that's too painful to admit, and so a fool has no delight in understanding. Now, how do you explain these scriptures to someone? Proverbs 26, 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like unto him. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Is there a conflict? Sounds like it's absolutely a contradiction in one verse, a contradiction in the next verse. No, of course not. Look at the latter part of it. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like unto him. Don't take a fool seriously. When a fool comes up and gives you some foolish, stupid, dumb statement, don't act like it's important. You're not going to be popular, but you'll be obeying God. Now, which would you rather be, disobedient to God or popular with fools? I meet fools all the time. I'm telling you, there are lots of them out there. You know that. Anybody who goes to, out in public a little bit knows that. Now, it says... Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. In other words, answer a fool foolishly. Because what you're doing is showing that you know that he's a fool. And that this is a foolish question. That's the explanation. Romans 12, verses 1 through 3. God says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Now today, everything in this world, and I hope to be able to bring you that prayer next week because it is a beauty and I'm going to publish it. But everything is supposed to be politically correct. Now how in the world you are going to avoid stepping on the toes of everybody from a Mandan Indian to a black receptionist to an oriental anchor on a television program to a lesbian, 
head of a major government agency all at the same time, I don't know. But that's where we are today in our society. To be politically correct, we actually saw an interview and one guy, they were almost making light of it, making fun of it, of how politically correct they want to be under the very Constitution and the death knell of this free society is built into its founding documents when carried to these extremes. It wasn't intended by the founding fathers, but there it is today. And they were actually making light of and saying that these Satanists in Fort Knox, I think it is, Fort Hood, Fort Hood up in, uh, I forget where it's located, but anyway, in the army, are actually openly practicing and that there are those, uh, it's called Wicca, which reminds you of wicked, but uh, that they are actual witches. I guess a witch can be male or female in their stupid, abominable, satanic religion. And that they actually have meetings and they're standing around making all these crazy signs and trying to get in touch with the devil. They don't have to work that hard. They can get in touch with the devil real easy. The devil is very eager to get in touch with them and already has, or they wouldn't be doing all of that kind of garbage. But the, the thing that galled me is that even the people doing the interview, including one, one government official, were so tolerant of it that they have the right to do that. You think they'd have had that right under the government of Almighty God, under the judges, under Moses? Did they have the right? Did Korah have the right? Was Moses and Aaron, were, were they politically correct? We understand your grievance. We're going to set up a board. We're going to have a study. And we'll give you a bunch of money. And a year from now, we'll have the people report on the study and tell us exactly what the problem really is here. Why, we can be just politically correct. No, God opened up the earth and kabloom. And of course, there are an awful lot of people would get right up and walk out of your neighborhood Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, and Presbyterian church if they thought that the Jesus Christ of Nazareth that they think they adore was the one who did that to Korah because they couldn't stand it, like the woman who wrote to me years ago. Well, I can't stand that God of the Old Testament. I don't mind Jesus Christ of the New. I worship Jesus of the New, but I can't stand that God of the Old Testament. Kill all those kids, those bears got them, just, just for coming out and calling old Elisha a bald-headed old man. So what? I mean, you know, that's, that's cruel beyond belief, just really cruel. Talk about cruelty. The animal rights people were the other day absolutely decrying that it was disrespectful to fish because somewhere in some kind of a fishing tournament and some kind of a celebration afterward, they had a fish head throwing contest. And the people would pick up a fish head that had been severed from the dead body of a fish and see who could throw it the farthest. And the animal and fish rights people got all exercised and bent out of shape. That is disrespectful to fish. <laughs> Give them one of them a kiss. Here, put that in your pocket. Here, take that in your purse. Get two of those fish heads and kiss that thing right in his big old mouth. Take it home with you and put it on the mantle. Anyway, I'm having fun with it, but that's, that's really crazy. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I know that everything that I have... So far as any concept, any knowledge, any doctrine, any understanding of the Word of God was given to me, given to me by my Father, by many others, by my own study, and through the Spirit of Almighty God, and is not something that I came up with all by myself. It's not my own petty little ideas. It is the Word of God right out of the Bible, the truth of God, and I think it is just as plain as day that any you know, 6th, 7th, 8th grader can understand it. I'll tell you one kind of abortion which God approves of. The abortion of idea babies. Just the minute it is conceived, the little, little devil's on the way, pfft, abort it, get rid of it, toss it out. Throw out personal idols, reject fanciful speculations, do not continually listen to dozens of different religious people. There are people that get on that television, sit there and click around and watch one religious show after another. Boy, what a way to get confused. Just let old Satan the devil dance and cavort and whisper and cajole. Oh, let us worship the Lord today. Or maybe scream at you like a Pentecostal or scream at you like some of these wildfire Two-seed and the spirit, leapers and jumpers, and all of these at the South Pitt Street Chicago church you heard about. But 
Uh, they really do enjoy it. I will have people come up to me and hand me tracks and, and will tell me, well, now I got this in the mail. I get junk mail. We get junk. Most of it is credit cards and, and uh, political surveys and just magazine subscriptions and just unwanted garbage. My poor wife will be struggling sometimes under the weight of the sack she's carrying out from a month's debris that have been, you know, it just takes you hours to go through it. Is it something you want or is it just junk mail? Well, there's religious junk mail. And people will read every tract and pamphlet and magazine and book they can get their hands on. We've got a lot of people like that. They're just curious. You ever look at a bunch of turkeys kill one another on a hot day? I used to actually walk way out around one corner fence because I knew if I walked up close to that fence, the turkeys would come running. Come running over there, and running run over there, and then run, running up behind them, running up behind them. Pretty soon there's so many turkeys crowding to see what's going on outside that fence that they'll smother one another. That's a fact. Ask a turkey farmer. And people are like that. That's why you have wrecks which cause wrecks. The wreck can be in the opposite lane, and it's called rubbernecking. And it's hardly it's just a little fender bumper. And over here, there's probably a collision, and somebody gets killed because people looking at the wreck while they're going along, and they, they just are curious. They're just like a flock of chickens or turkeys. They, they want to run up there and see what is going on. Don't listen to dozens of them and continually read every religious publication you can get your hands on. If I got time to give you Moses' dying instructions, Let's go to the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, and I'll hurry with this, but this is really beautiful. Moses knew he was going to die, and he gave his final instructions, and you'll read that in the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. I might have time to read it all. It's a very lengthy chapter. Beginning in verse 1, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and the judgments which I teach you for you to do them, that you may live, and go in and possess the land which the eternal your God, a God of your fathers giveth you. How would you like to just walk in to a lovely land of hills and brooks and verdant trees and grass and shrubs and just say, there's your, you know, 140 acres and not have to pay for it. That's what they were looking at, complete possession of land. And we come from the land. And if you live close to the land, you're living close to God because you know that milk comes out of the udder of a cow or a goat and not from a plastic jar in a refrigerator or in a supermarket. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it. I want to repeat that again. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it. It's not Garner Ted Armstrong talking. That's Almighty God from heaven above telling us you don't add to His word. His word is sufficient. You don't have an unhallowed, unholy, weird, twisted curiosity and try to get all esoteric about the Godhead. You don't get all kinds of demonic ideas and try to propound it to somebody. That you may keep the commandments of the Eternal your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Eternal did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Eternal your God destroyed them from among you. But you that did cleave unto the Eternal your God are alive, every one of you, this day. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land whither you go to possess it. Keep, therefore, and do them, because this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of these nations, which shall hear of these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What nation is there so great who has God so nigh unto them as the eternal our God is in all things that we call upon Him for. And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them to your sons and your sons' sons, your grandsons, especially the day that you stood before the eternal your God in Horeb, when the Eternal said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. And you came near, and you stood under the mountain. And we're talking now about the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, the great earthquake, the black cloud, the fire, talking about how they all fled. Said, let Moses talk to us, but don't let God talk to us anymore. The giving of the Ten Commandments, the mountain burned with fire, under the midst of heaven with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness, and the eternal spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, similitude, only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, 
with which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Eternal commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it. Take you therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you say you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Eternal spoke unto you. So that he's leading up to something here. You didn't see size or shape. You didn't see any similitude. So, lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image and similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth, unless you lift up your eyes unto heaven when you see the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and even all the hosts of heaven, the Milky Way, and all the universe, should be driven to worship them, and serve them, which the eternal your God has divided into all nations under the whole heaven. But the Eternal has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are this day. I won't read it all, but a little later on he said, the Eternal is in a, that he is a merciful God. He said in verse 30, when you're in tribulation, and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, and if you turn to the Eternal your God and shall be obedient unto his voice, he's talking about even if they had turned into idolatry, that they realize what it had cost them and they're in tribulation, and they turn back to him, the eternal your God is a merciful God, verse 31, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swore unto them. This is a beautiful chapter, you ought to read it all, and many of the first several chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, and how Moses had to be sadly turned away and could not inherit the promised land. But remember, it's very easy to break that first commandment in ways that many people would never suspect. I am the Lord thy God, he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in the heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters that are beneath the earth. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, but showing mercy unto the thousandth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. Sometimes people can stray way far away from God right while they sit in church. They can study the Bible and stray way far away from God. They can come up with some of the most bizarre and sometimes even the most blasphemous suggestions and ideas that you can imagine. One kind of idolatry is having our personal idol of an attitude, a concept, an idea, a doctrine that we just make a part of us and we're not willing to let it go. Throw away every personal item.